Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into those questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by former Guardian Weekend columnist, author and host Georgina Lawson. Her recently released book, Raceless, is a powerful memoir of growing up in a loving home, but one where her identity was never acknowledged and specifically where her blackness was never recognized. Unknown to Georgina at the time, her family had been keeping a secret which would lead to what she describes as an erasure of her racial identity. The book is a moving recollection of unraveling the truth and the impact of that discovery, but also a wider exploration of modern racial identity. Georgina, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, thank you. Well, so first off, I guess, before we get into the book itself, do you have a sense of how common your experience is? Have you met many other people battling with similar issues of, of a disconnect between their family story and their own sense of identity? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Over the years, I've spoken to so many people raised within white homes, transracial adoptees, which, you know, are people who are raised by caregivers of a different race to them and just generally people who are of multiple heritage backgrounds. Um, and I've spoken to them about the complexities of being encouraged to identify as white when they're not, as well as the complexities of, you know, enduring racial gaslighting in intimate settings like the home. Mm. Um, and I've spoken to lots of people because they've got in contact with me and shared their stories, which happened when I first started writing about race and identity from this perspective back in 2017 in The Guardian. Mm. So, yeah, group of people who can relate to what I'm saying which you know validated my experiences and definitely you know gave gave weight to this issue that I thought was quite unique and, and quite um quite unique and quite underexplored I guess mm. and and I mean taboo would you go as far as saying taboo because I my mm. sense is that race in general is a taboo in our society um it's taboo uh, when it's obviously expressed by racists because we want it to be taboo, but it's also taboo among generally well-meaning well people who are afraid of saying the wrong thing, being the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And, and I guess the ultimate taboo is a taboo within a family setting, right? Did, mm. did it feel like discussing a taboo? Yeah, absolutely. Because all these people who have been encouraged to identify as something that they're not, all these people that have been asked to aspire to whiteness as, as their identity, they were embarrassed, they were ashamed of, you know, believing something that others could see perhaps was really obvious. And I think a lot of that shame came from parents because they were perhaps trying to trying to hide a romantic encounter that wasn't, you know, something that they wanted to discuss or it came from a place of shame in raising a black child when they hadn't expected it or they hadn't wanted it. So a lot of that shame that these people were feeling had come from, you know, the people that loved them. It had been passed down from, from their parents. And that's really, really hard to discuss. And it's really tricky to unpack. And it's really painful. So mm. there's definitely a lot of shame around our stories. And 
yeah, it's definitely something that's to do. And so based on your experience, which was growing up with two parents who were racialized as white and, and raised to believe you were also racialized as white it, from it, from their perspective, at least. And I, and I know as you got older, that was uh, much harder to uh, hold on to as, as a myth. But what was the story or, or what has your story taught you about whiteness? How do you think of whiteness? What is it to you? How do I think of whiteness? Um, I guess, you know, whiteness and blackness, all these racial categories were created to enforce racism. When we look at the history of, of where these categories come from, those are the reasons in which they were constructed to benefit one group white over the other, which is everybody else. But whiteness is not just a racial category that we perceive to be real but it's a real social currency and it can aid anyone in its proximity and you know I was encouraged to identify as white because my parents were white but I also have some white ancestry and I think that my parents hoped that in their home in their upbringing of me I could get away with saying that I was white because they were white and in a way I could because it gave me protection it gave me you know, some of the privileges that they had. And I talk about this in my book and I talk about it with other mixed heritage people who can understand what I mean. But, you know, when you're the only black person in your family, there's definitely difficulties, but there are a lot of privileges that come with having two white parents turn up to a parent's evening at school. You know, having your parents look and sound like the teachers, always getting that sense of respect because even though I didn't look like my teachers, my parents did. Mm. And, you know, I benefited from a white sounding surname, I benefited from that ease of, of knowing how to navigate relationships with white people. So when I went into other spaces, I wasn't scared to speak up. I wasn't scared to talk because I was, I was used to, you know, dealing with whiteness on a daily basis. So there was definitely a lot of privilege that came with, with that social currency. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think whiteness is, is more than just, a, you know, a category that we think of. It's, it, it's a real social currency, yeah. Mm, and, and and would you say that your parents took, I guess, the parenting equivalent of the colorblind approach to identity? And, and, and I raise this because obviously there's a lot of people still, you know, today who will say, you know, oh, I don't see race. And, um, you know, and often they mean it in a, in a well-meaning way than saying it because they, they want to suggest that they don't have prejudice. Um, but, but your experience of a sort of colorblind approach to parenting had quite a traumatic impact on you, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess this colorblind approach is something that people adopt when they want to try and eradicate any kind of issues around race. It's, it's this idea that if we talk about color, if we talk about difference, then it will somehow lean sorry somehow lead to racism so it's better just to not talk about it at all but of course what that does is that leaves the person who does have a racialized identity which is something other than white it leaves them feeling really alone it feels leaves them feeling really unseen and unheard and of course you can love that child in that space but if you are not acknowledging all parts of who they are then they're not going to grow up with a full understanding of themselves or the world around them so like for me I was quite ill-equipped 
when it came to dealing with people that weren't white, even with questions that most people find really easy to answer, like, you know, where are you from? Which one of your parents is black? Even the old sort of refrain of, oh, do you have to work twice as hard to succeed? I'd never heard any of that. So I was really unequipped for like a racially hierarchical world when, you know, I, I came into my mid-teens and started to talk to other groups of people. Um, so there was a lot of damage done with the colorblind approach. And, and of course, like in my book, I write about, you know, how not having a racial mirror or having anything around my appearance really acknowledged how that led to me not really liking my own body, not really liking my hair, not being able to accept who I was in the mirror. Um, mm. You know, my parents showed me a lot of love and my mum would always take me to get my hair done, but it wasn't done in the way that like, you know, I do my hair now, like getting it braided, using the right oils to keep it moisturized. None of that was really a thing in my house. So when she did take me into, you know, more diverse parts of London, I grew up in Sutton, but she would take me to Croydon to get my hair done because we were getting refused by the white, <laughs> the white hairstylists mm. in my area. But we never spoke about why I was getting refused and where my hair had come from. So there was this care there, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't being fully cared for or fully seen because we could only go so far in talking mm. about you know, my ancestry and, and the real reason that we were going to black hairstylists. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, in your particular situation, there was a reason why discussing differences was taboo, right? Because your, your mum was, was deep, you know, having to deal with a, a secret that she was carrying. And, um, but, but do you think that we struggle to discuss differences more broadly? It's not just within that, the context of your experience, is it? There's, there's, there's a sort of difficulty in, in, in discussing difference. And I wonder, do you have a sense of why that is? Why is it so difficult to discuss differences? Um, I, I guess culturally, you know, I think some aspects of my family upbringing could be seen as, you know, microcosm for the way that we discuss race and identity in the UK. We don't really want to discuss it because we haven't really come to terms with our past. Mm. Um, haven't really come to terms with who we are in terms of you know the colonial atrocities that we committed all around the world and i think britain likes to think of itself as you know the the, the leader in um i guess like cultural diversity but we always forget that we're the ones that created slavery of course we ended it but we created it so mm. there's this idea that we don't really need to discuss racism because it's over but it's still very much embedded into the fabric of our society mm. um, and even, you know, with my family, there was this kind of pushback at first when I started talking about lots of things that had happened to me and, you know, people saying, oh, was it really that bad? Or, you know, you had a family that looked after you. And people do still say this to me now when I write about these things online. And it's a case of, we should be able to voice all parts of our experience. Like, of course, I'm grateful for having a cohesive family, but I should be also allowed to talk about, you know, the impact of, racial denial in that space as well because it was both it was love but it was also you know a huge element of racial denial and it makes people so awkward because we just haven't come to terms with what it means to have have a racialized society we just don't talk yeah. about it in this way. so I think silence in in general in society is really key and that silence bleeds into some of our interpersonal relationships mm. I'm I'm wondering how race was discussed in your household growing up. I know that obviously, you know, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't mentioned when it came to you specifically, but you know, you were growing up in the UK, uh, you know, rel relatively recently, and and obviously in a in a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious 
society and and so I was just wondering how difference was mentioned in your family setting aside from you or if it just was never ever mentioned And, and I ask this because my sense is that the reason that white people often don't want to discuss uh, racial, dif- you know, racial differences, which aren't obviously biological differences, they're constructed differences, but that have real world impact on people's lives, as you well know, um, those that, that in discussing them, we might have to acknowledge the hierarchy within that um, discussion. Mm. And so I was wondering whether there was any sense of that hierarchy present in the way that race was discussed, you know, not in reference to you, because I know obviously that was something that was avoided, but in general? No, not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> there wasn't really, you know, I, it's hard to describe to people, but I was never referred to as black or mixed by any family members. You know, my mum is Irish and my dad. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, my dad was English and I think they caught, sort of met I think the, the the sort of cultural stoicism that comes from both of those cultures was kind of yeah. equally matched in in their marriage in different ways. Um, mm. Nobody ever acknowledged why I look different. You know, maybe when I was younger, I'd have a joke with my cousins and we'd say, oh, you got left out in the sun too long. That's why you're brown. It was sort of like this joke that would get kind of thrown around. Um, and in Ireland, I talk in the book about being told that I was a throwback gene on my mum's side because she she's from a place near... Spanish Point which is a very western tip of you know the west coast of Ireland Mm. and we used to say that oh I could be a throwback gene because my mum's ancestors were wrecked off the coast of the you know Spanish Armada and all these sailors infiltrated the gene pool as a result and they darkened the Irish gene pool but that isn't historically accurate and also I don't look Spanish Mm. so that was something that got thrown around but other than that we never you know we never discussed anything to do with racial difference. I didn't really hear my parents talk politically about issues around privilege or discrimination. My dad listened to a lot of music from around the world, like a lot of punk, a lot of ska, a lot of reggae. Mm. And I remember once trying to sort of broach the topic with him and saying, oh, you know, you listen to all these artists growing up. Um, Did you ever think that you would end up with a daughter that looked like me? And he would just sort of laugh and smile, but he would never go into you know why he was white and I was black it just wasn't acknowledged like I can't mm. tell you how much of a silence there was around around yeah. what I looked like so yeah it's difficult I had to sort of become I became politically engaged on my own and I sort of started educating myself mm. um, and a lot of racialized experiences growing up and enduring a lot of racism in all these white settings in Ireland but also growing up in Surrey people would make make it obvious that I was you know different people would point out that I didn't look like my family so being racialized by other people outside of the home and outside of those white set spaces mm-hmm. reminded me that I was black and then I kind of had to construct a black identity on my own completely mm. on my own and um, it, yeah it was inter- difficult <laughs> I can Im- I can only imagine um it's interesting when I was reading about this sort of um, the throwback uh, myth that you described that your family, you know, referred to as a sort of explanation um, that, that that still wasn't an acknowledgement of your blackness because it could have been right. Because there are families where, you know, someone's great grandfather was or grandfather was African and then the, the children might 
have, you know, look a little bit different to their white parents. And that is considered a throwback gene. Mm. And that's a recognition of blackness. But in your case, there was that it, it wasn't right. It was it was a yeah. way of it, it still didn't open that door. No, absolutely. Like that statement or that explanation is anti-black in itself. It gave me a route out of my blackness mm. and further into my European heritage. You know, it nestled me into this kind of ridiculous part of Irish mythology, but it also positioned me further in into my European ancestry. Oh, she's Irish and a bit Spanish. Well, no, I'm not. Like you can see with my hair and my skin tone that I'm not just Spanish. I'm not just Portuguese, but it was yeah it was it was born I guess an explanation that was also born in anti-blackness it's it yeah. positioned me further into whiteness I guess yeah that's what I was thinking that it was still a statement of re rejection or refusal to include blackness I suppose um you describe in the book page 18 the need to undo a psychology birthed from whiteness mm. uh, what has that journey looked like for you and, and how did the psychology of, of whiteness impact you? Yeah, I think it's a journey that a lot of people of colour, black, brown, Asian, they go on that journey themselves when they realise what it's like to live with a racialized identity in a white majority society. Um, but for you know people like myself, we're in a white majority society and we're also in an all white home. So a lot of harmful stereotypes um, have been, I guess, inherited just as a result of being in all white settings. And it does a lot of damage to your psychology. So as I said before, the way that I viewed myself, the books that I was reading, um, the culture that I was leaning towards, all of that was so white. And I just needed to not even eradicate some of that, but add, go through this additive process of, learning about the experiences of other black women, women that look like me, reading stuff about the mixed experience, reading you know, sociology articles and psychology articles that validated my experiences within a white home. I felt like some of the stuff that I endured was you know, almost crazy making. Did this really happen to me? Was this really rooted in racism? Why did you know, my parents not talk about my heritage or why did they think this was the best route? I had to go and look at other people's experiences who had gone through similar things. And there was, um, you know, sociology literature around mainly people that had been adopted by white parents. And that kind of gave me a little bit more confidence in in sort of validating, yeah, what I'd gone through. Mm. Um, I also write in the book about going off and moving through black spaces. And that was really important for me. I went to Cuba. I went to Nicaragua. I went to Brooklyn. Um, and that was really just to not be a visible outsider a lot of white people don't realize what it's like when you are constantly standing out in every space that you inhabit. Mm. It makes you paranoid and it makes you worried and you constantly feel as if you are the only person that thinks like you because you're the only person that looks like you. So I had to go and live in spaces where I didn't stand out and that was super important to me. Yeah. And I write, I write in the book about, you know, the importance of having a racial mirror. Um, yeah. If you are a parent who is raising kids who are of different cultural or racial background to you, take them to places where they don't stand out, introduce them to family friends who do look like, who do look like them, mm. raise their aspirations and help them see that there are people that look like them doing cool things. Um, so I'd never really had that, you know, by the time I left and went traveling, I was 22, I'd lost my dad and I did have more black friends than when I was, you know, 12 or 13. 
Mm. But I still hadn't been, you know, living in all black spaces. So that was really important to me. So I did that for a year. And, you know, that still influences how I look at the world now. If I'm living abroad or if I'm, I guess, writing about something, it's really important to me to bring in the voices of other people that look like me and to ensure that the friendship groups I inhabit are more more than just all white that's that's all really important to me so reading and moving through these spaces um, and giving my permission to do the things that I'd been scared to do like get my hair braided as I said before yeah so undo that psychology of whiteness that I'd inherited for 20 something years yeah so you went on this journey I guess of unpicking the whiteness that you had been you know completely subsumed in although clearly from the book you did have a sense you know from the age of five I think you say that there that, that there was something about the narrative that didn't quite fit because of particularly I guess how people were reacting to you um and I'm, and you say at one point in the book that when it comes to white parents raising black or brown children that it's important to remember that love on its own isn't always enough um, and, and I mentioned this just because of, of what you've just said now, what would you describe as missing? And what would you say to the parents who say, well, love is enough, you know, I'm offering them a supportive framework, you know, your experience suggests that that might not actually be true. Um, yes, as I was saying, racial mirrors are really important and celebrating the child's heritage educating them about where they're from and educating them about the realities of living in an unfair world, not just an unfair world, but a racist world, a racially hierarchical world. When they come home and say, oh, somebody's called me the N-word, it's not just a case of a one-off, you know, mean boy. It's the case of that happened because some people are racist and some people will call you this word. And this is the reality of the situation. And I'm going to hear you and I'm going to listen to your experiences and I'm going to validate them and I'm not going to try and minimise them. Yeah. Um, and also I'm going to be there for you because you are going to go through this again. And mm. my job as your parent, not just to validate your experiences, but to go and report that and to make a big deal and to make you feel as if that matters and that shouldn't be happening to you. Mm. So all of that is really key, but also for the parents to do their own work on their own whiteness, like try and learn how to exist without being welded to their whiteness, try and separate themselves from a system that is based on, you know, incorrect, harmful notions of racial purity and racial superiority. Mm. They need to do the work. They need to ensure that when they say, they need to acknowledge the fact that when they say love is enough, that is really feeding into that white savior narrative. And they need to understand that that's harmful. Mm. Um, yeah, I think doing the work on their own whiteness is key. And we don't really talk about, I don't, I haven't even really spoken about that at length in Raceless, but that is absolutely key because only then will whiteness cease to be the default normative identity to which all of us should be aspiring. Mm, mm. And I mean, it's interesting listening to you because I think that the idea that maybe something like what you've described, like experiencing a racial slur or experiencing race, racism, do you feel that those experiences are filtered and framed and interpreted differently for you within whiteness as compared to, and I'm not gonna say uh, as compared to blackness because I think that's kind of comparing the two. I think maybe the, the, it's whiteness and actually openness to different perspectives outside of whiteness. 
Um, and I'm thinking the difference maybe between like minimizing something like, oh, that's just one mean person versus recognizing a structural problem. Was that something that you have started to see differently as you've gone on your journey of personal exploration? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm loath to kind of moan too much about, you know, what happened when I went to my parents with those kind of accounts, because I think it really it's really quite common like you know I've spoken to so, so many black kids in white homes and the parent is attempting to make them feel better and make them feel as if you know they are just one-off occasions of racism but as we get older we have to we on our own black and brown people learn that they're not just one-offs like this is part of a a problem which is systemic and embedded into the cultural fabric of the UK and all these other western societies we are going to experience racism again and again and again mm. Yeah. Because, because society has been structured to ensure that that happens to us again and again and again. And we need to have parents and friends and family members that can acknowledge the reality of that. But that's painful for them because, you know, there's a lot of guilt and shame around being white and acknowledging your privilege in that you never have to go through that. Mm. It's important to do that. And it's important to listen when we say these aren't one offs. This is how my life is going to be. And you can either get on board and support me and make a fuss and stand up for me, or you can pretend that it's not a big deal and we're going to have a more separate, more distant relationship as a result. And, you know, that's what it was like between me and my mum for a while. She couldn't really fully see or hear what was going on in my life. And it's not until we went to therapy and spoke about what I'd gone through that the therapist said, if, if you're not on board, if you're not prepared to listen to what your daughter's enduring, you're not going to have a relationship that's worth talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the work they, they have to do as white parents and white friends and white partners. They have to fully hear what's going on in our lives. And your your experience um, within your family is such a clear parallel of the way that we refuse or, or, or the way in which actually race divides uh, individuals when it comes to their interpretation of how significant a framework that is in terms of the detrimental impact it has on our society I feel because some people completely recognize and acknowledge either because they live it or because they they, they understand it or they they you know have some sort of window into it that this is a this is a structuring force within our society and then of course there's people who by and large because they don't experience it don't think that it's a structuring force and think it's mainly about I guess interpersonal you know mm. um, aggression or, or, or sort of meanness in specific individuals I mean what has your life taught you about the messy conversations that you describe in the book about race and, and inequality in our interpersonal relationships? Um, I guess that these interpersonal, these interpersonal acts of race or racial erasure, that they aren't born in a vacuum, right? They are happening because of how our society is structured. They are happening because of the way that we prioritize and protect whiteness as a category, as a currency. Um, people, I think it's, it's, you know, when we look at sort of texts now about, you know, talking, talking to other people about whiteness, you know, lots of books have been written about that. We do have to look at the interpersonal because that is what makes up society. We have to look at 
the relationships closest to us, our partners, our friends, our family members, before we can really look at the macro, I think. Mm. So, yeah, for me, that's where the work has, has, has been and talking to lots of other people about their experiences has really legitimised that because, you know, we are a society that is mixing and changing at a very, very fast rate. And these conversations about difference and privilege and discrimination and racism, they are going to have to be taking place more frequently within the home and within our romantic relationships. Mm. You, and if they take place, then we, we can't move society anywhere at all. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you feel that it, until you were able to, um, or until your mum could acknowledge your blackness, your identity, your experience of the world, that she wasn't fully seeing you? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, she wasn't fully seeing me. She was saying things like, you're my daughter and I love you. And, you know, race doesn't matter to me or colour doesn't matter to me. And that comes from a place of wanting to avoid the reality of, you know, my ancestry and, and, and what those experiences and what my experiences related to my ancestry cause me. It, she wanted to have a relationship with me. I know that it's never a question of, I don't want to be your mom or I don't want to love you, but that's, as I said, not enough. Love is not enough. You need to ensure that you are fully listening to what goes on in that child's life or what goes on in that person's life. Mm. And There's you need to work to support them when they tell you that because of I you know because I look different to you these are the things that are happening to me mm. so I think my mom, I always felt that there was love there I always felt there was care there but yeah it's 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 not enough on its own because it's maddening being in spaces where you have affectionate loving relationships with people on one hand and then you overhear a comment which completely destroys your sense of self if you know they made a racist remark about something on the news and you know you think oh that that person is me as well mm. so I've spoken to so many people that have endured you know racial slurs from family members um and the idea that white family members can hold racist views while raising black children it's not new to yeah. many of us who have lived it but mm. it's hard to describe when it's not your family setup or it's hard to describe to a black person that has, you know, all family members that look like them. It's a very particular experience for multiple heritage families. And I think it's something that we need to get better at talking about. And we will have to, as I was saying, our, our country continues to mix and change. Yeah, there's um, a moving section in the book when you call your friend Abby and talk about the fact that you don't know how to be Nigerian when <sighs> you've done the DNA test and find out that you're 43% I think um Nigeria of Nigerian ancestry and that you didn't feel that you had the cultural knowledge um to do that can can you learn to be Nigerian um yeah I think you can I mean my cultural knowledge is something that was born through family osmosis and you know I am really proud to be of a British culture I was born and raised in the UK lots of my cultural reference points come from Britain but of course if I'd had a Nigerian parent or relative growing up alongside that then my cultural identity would be sort of a hybrid like loads of people that I know mm. if I'd gone back you know to visit 
and I kind of stayed in contact with members of my family and we spoke Yoruba or whatever I would have that hybrid like lots of my friends but mm. I don't have that and I think you know claiming Nigerian Nigeria in that way culturally will only come from from having from having sort of a family member so maybe that's something that I can continue to build upon in the future but mm you know for now I can tell people what I know which is yeah I have Nigerian ancestry and I'm really proud of that and I'm really happy to have that knowledge because it helps me move through the world with a little bit more confidence right because I know of that part of my history that was obscured for so long just having just that one little word has made such a difference but of course culturally that's still a work in progress. Mm. You compare your experience to those of transracial children, i.e. children adopted by a parent of a a different ethnicity to their own. Um, But you describe feeling that that conversation has been hijacked by a high profile story of a white woman claiming to identify as black, whose name we shall not name um, and who you choose not to name in the in the book. Um, what what has the focus on that particular story which you know did take over the headlines obscure what 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 has the focus on that particular story about transracialism obscured when it comes to understanding the issue would you say yeah so I think the word transracial wasn't particularly controversial but it wasn't particularly common before it was hijacked by this woman it always just, it's always come to mean the very real experience of children of colour who are usually black or brown being raised by families of a different cultural or racial background to them who are usually white. That's all transracial means, right? But when this story went viral in 2015, it suddenly came to mean, you know, the idea of, of trying on a racial identity and discarding it at will. You know, this woman was white, but she'd chosen to present as black in order to further her career opportunities. Mm. And she were transracial to justify what I can only call, you know, like racial fraud. Like the woman was born Caucasian. (laughs) So the idea that you can try on and discard blackness like a costume suddenly was something that was getting discussed and debated in the media as if if it was a legitimate experience. And it's, it's not. Mm. And that's what transracial came to mean. But it's it's always just been the experience of, you know, the very non-controversial experience of black and brown children being raised by white families. And that kind of, I guess, dislocation that comes from not having somebody who looks like you raise you or not having the language to express yourself in an all white home. That's all those experiences around transracialism. And, you know, when I first started writing about race online, I realized that my experience had been a transracial one, not because I was adopted, but because I was in a home with people who are of a different racial background to me. And that's, you know, a legitimate thing. But when when that story went viral, it just, it came to mean something else. And I think that was really dangerous for people in the adoption community and people like myself who talk about these things and want to keep that word as what it actually means. Yeah, no, I think it's a really important point because I um, myself had really only ever heard of it in the context of that story. And so um, I, it was, I'm grateful to you for, for raising it in the book and, and pointing out why it's important to, to kind of resituate that word in its proper context. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you describe in the book a, a very tough moment when you ask your mum for answers and you ask her to acknowledge you as black 
Um, and I wanted to ask you why you think that was so hard for her. Do you think that was because of the fact that you that, that she'd had an affair and that of course was its own source of shame for her and and her own personal journey I guess of reconciliation with that history and but do you think that it was just that or do you think that there was more to her struggle in acknowledging you as black and what did it mean to you for her to do that yeah I think there was a lot of shame wrapped up in her approach to how she dealt with everything around around my race, around our relationship. I think I tried to put myself in her shoes and imagine what it was like when she birthed this little brown baby and yeah. you know, her husband, my dad, didn't challenge her. Yeah. But in doing that, he'd also kind of locked this secret away between us all. Like no one ever spoke about it. It was only me bringing things up. And every time I brought it up, the anxiety and the trepidation that they must have felt as a couple. My mum must have felt as a parent every year, this child is getting more precocious, more curious, more cynical. Yeah. And I'm asking questions. Oh, where am I from? Mum, why do I look different? Somebody at school called me this word. What does it mean? You know, I was asking with increasing frequency up until I got to the age of, you know, around 18. Yeah. And I think she had so much shame wrapped up in her affair that that shame then got passed on to me and I internalised it as shame around my appearance because we're not talking about this thing and this mm. thing, my appearance, my, my, my black hair, my brown skin. We're not talking about any of that. So therefore it must be something bad. Let me not talk about it or let me try mm. and change it. Mm. So when we went to therapy, we spoke about how the shame had been passed on to me but of course it felt like there was a shame around my ancestry. There's a shame around me literally, you know, being black. That's what it felt like. Um, like, was my mum ashamed of that? I think it's really hard to separate the two, if I'm honest. Yeah, of it's, course. It's definitely a combination of both. And we spoke about that at length. Yeah. My mum was adamant that she was never ashamed of me, but she was definitely ashamed of her affair and what that meant and what that signified. And of course, that manifested itself in how I looked. And she had to look at that every day. So of course, it came between us. And I think the two have a really symbiotic relationship. And it's, you know, it was really difficult to unpack that, really painful. Yeah. And, and possibly, yeah, I, I mean, who knows whether you can even disentangle them, I guess, when it's... No, I don't think you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on something um, in, in the beginning of our conversation and I, I wanted to come back to it, which was the parallels between your story and our wider story as a society here in Britain, where many might argue that we also haven't fully acknowledged the hows and the whys of how we've come to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic Britain. Do you think Britain also has a secret? Um... I think Britain has lots of secrets, um, yeah. lots and lots of secrets, but we're very good at just not acknowledging any of them, you know, like with atrocities in the Commonwealth, we might donate, you know, a couple of hundred grand and say that we've done our bit, but we're not really acknowledging the fact that we were extracting wealth and resources from there for years, hundreds of years. And that as a result, those communities are still completely destroyed and disenfranchised. 
Mm. And then we do our bit when there's a, you know, a volcano eruption and say, oh, you know, we've, we've given this much money and we pat ourselves on the back. But if we really looked at what we owe these places, we'd be donating or not even donating, like giving back what, <laughs> what we've taken away. Mm. Um, but I think our government doesn't want to do that. There's a lot of racial gaslighting and cultural gaslighting that comes from the very upper echelons of our, our society. Mm. Uh, and I think it will stay that way because it doesn't benefit us as a nation to go back and apologize or go back and start repairing it doesn't benefit our economy so it, it won't get done mm. and every time people of these communities try and draw attention to it it's oh you're playing the race card oh slavery's over oh that was ages ago no but it's still fucking us up now <laughs> it's still it's still destroying communities now that's what people don't understand yeah and and just as you had to have the the, the therapy and, and I guess reconciliation with your mom and, and her acknowledging your truths. Um, we haven't really had that process here in Britain, or I would argue in Europe more broadly. Mm. Um, and I suppose maybe I, I read in your story a, uh, a, a kind of a, a personal tale with wider implications for nations who don't want to deal with their own secrets. Do you mm. Do you feel there was something of that when you were writing it? Yeah, absolutely. Like I tried to look at the wider historical context, but overall I do think talking about these issues, whether it's on a macro scale, you know, on a societal level, talking about the impact of race, talking about things that are awkward around discrimination, when we talk about them, it attacks the stigma and it attacks the shame and it dismantles that silence. Mm. And it also empowers the people who have had power taken away from them. So yeah. that's why I don't think it will happen on a national level because it doesn't benefit us economically to restore power to the communities that we have ransacked over the years, we've raped and we've pillaged. Mm. I don't think in our generation it will happen. Um, Mm. <laughs> yes well on that optimistic note um I, we have a, a quick fire round um at the end of each episode where I basically ask you a very quick set of questions and um ideally you respond with pretty brief answers um oh, okay. so if you're ready for the quick fire round um what is your definition of whiteness my definition of whiteness is a racial category which we perceive to be real, a currency which can aid anyone in its proximity, a system based on harmful notions of racial purity and superiority. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is the construction of racial categories. Whiteness and blackness were created to ensure that racism could flourish. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Um, no, I don't think it's something that will exist. Um, post-racial, I think is the term that is just bandied around by kind of, you know, right-wing political pundits in an attempt to 
<laughs> smother the conversation around race. <laughs> is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think addressing the, the onus shouldn't be on us to talk about how to, you know, deal with whiteness. It should be on white individuals and white people to try and learn how to exist without being so wedded to their whiteness. So I think it is really useful. Georgina, thank you so much for participating in today's episode. Um, if people want to purchase your book, where should they head? Do you have a bookstore of preference? Yeah, Pages of Hackney has been lovely. Stoke Newington Bookshop as well. Or if not, any good bookstore with taste. <laughs> <laughs> something like that <laughs> fantastic and um if uh, our listeners would like to uh follow georgina you have a twitter handle that is it at georgina lawton is that correct? yeah at georgina lawton then instagram is georgina lawton underscore so yeah fantastic well thank you once again uh for joining us today thank you to everyone uh for listening in to this episode of we need to talk about whiteness and please do subscribe on itunes spotify or soundcloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness <laughs>